Hello, and welcome to the Marking Show podcast. This episode is brought to you by our partner, Canva. Canva lets you design anything and publish anywhere. Yeah, we use Canva to create all our designs, even the podcast artwork you might be looking at right now. On today's episode, it's week five of our mini-series with Nathan as he navigates the wild world of the Antler Accelerator program, where top aspiring entrepreneurs attempt to form new businesses and pitch for investment. Yeah, it's kind of like Love Island meets The Apprentice. On this week's episode, we talk to Nathan about consumer research and how to really pin down the true consumer pain points. We cover qual and quant research and tips on how to get the most out of every consumer interaction. We hope you enjoy the episode. And if you do, don't forget to hit subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And remember to leave us a five-star rating and review while you're there. So Nathan, welcome back. How's your week been? It's been a good week. These weeks tend to go in waves, I think, ups and downs. And it's a bit of a roller coaster in the startup world. You have good days and bad days and good half days and bad half days. And you know, it's a bit of an emotional roller coaster. But this week, I think, on the whole, has been a really strong week. It's been one where we've had a lot of decisive moves forward, I think, as a team. So uh, we've got a really strong uh, indication and green light on the idea that we've been working on from Antler, which is really good. Um, obviously, it's provisional, uh, but we've had you know the green light to keep proceeding and working on it, which is really good. Um, obviously, the idea we're still looking at is uh, trying to solve the process of buying a pet online. So that's still the space that we're looking at, um, and they've given us that go ahead. So it ticks their boxes so far in terms of you know problem market fit, market size, uh, the right team so far. So that's been that's been really positive. I think uh, getting that traction from them has been really good. Um, and then also getting very, very close to finalizing my co-founder. I think, you know, it's been a lot of still, you know, the dating scene, but now you're getting a little bit more serious with the co-founder and starting to really get into asking some sort of pointy co-founder questions. Um, and we sat down this week, uh, uh, him and I, and we sort of had those really quite hard discussions about, you know, some of the some of the more, uh, yeah, the more pointy bits. So, you know, if we get funding, how much are we going to pay ourselves? And then really starting to say, okay, well, if we pay ourselves this much, then how much does this leave for the rest? Um, you know, how how much are we going to be able to really spend on marketing and development? And you know, what does that mean for our our runway? So if we if we're paying ourselves this salary, how long do we need before we need to go out and raise more money again? So all of these questions just to make sure that we have alignment. Um, also debates about like cliffs and vesting terms. So um, a cliff is basically um, part of a, a founder's agreement and a startup agreement whereby um, obviously if you're coming in and you have 50% of the company, um, you don't get that 50% on day one. Uh, you have tend to have what's called a cliff, which is um, a period of time before your equity um, actually starts taking into account. So general startup terms tend to be a one-year cliff. So you don't actually get your first chunk of equity until after one year. And that's actually to start uh, to, to protect the founders in case there's an issue in the first year or in case one of the founders isn't right. Um, and they, you discover that along the way, it prevents them from having to take half your company away uh, within the first year, uh, no strings attached. Um, and then you have vesting periods. So it might vest over four years. So you might get 25% after year one, 25% after year two. Um, again, just to make sure that the people are committed in the right way. But again, these are these are questions that you need to answer uh, straight off the bat. Otherwise, they come back to bite you. Um, and probably even a unique question that I'm having to consider as well is um, obviously the idea I've been working on. Uh, my wife's actually been been part of it as well. And we had been doing a lot of work together on this before I came into Antler. So the idea of, you know, how does my wife get involved in, in the project? And, you know, does she come on as an employee? Does she get um, is there any equity involved in that? And again, you know, these are very delicate conversations to have, particularly when, you know, you're working with a third co-founder and, you know, if you've got a, you know, your other co-founders or your other partners are, you know, husband and wife team, then, you know, it can, it can feel maybe a little bit, a little bit awkward, which I totally appreciate. So, you know, that's a, probably a unique situation to me that I'm having to, to navigate. Um, but I think, again, having those really open and honest conversations uh, was really good in trying to say, okay, how do we set ground rules? You know, I think we all agree that, you know, having a vet on the team for a pet business is super valuable. So it's just about working through the finer points to make sure the relationship uh, is strong for all of us. Yeah. And, and what's your approach uh, to having those uh, those hard discussions? I know that you've said that honesty is extremely important, but do you have a, a special way of preparing for how you're going to ask these questions? Do you write them down? What, what's your approach? 
I think uh, I'm probably not as prepared as I should be. I tend to sort of have these free flowing. Um, th- this particular conversation, we did have our sort of 50 co-founder questionnaires in front of us. So we did have a lot of sort of pre-prepared questions that we were able to go through. But then when you get into the sort of the the real discussions and you sort of divert from the script and start having a, a you know, mano a mano conversation, uh, you just really need to, to gauge the other person. You need to be sort of, seeing how they're reacting what does their body language look like how are they sort of sort of flinching or or leaning forward depending on the you know the types of um, points that you're making so i think that having those prompts was really valuable but you do really need to read the body language of your co-founder and see you know are they making those positive signs and are, are they really responding to you in the right way um, because you know certain things you know will will show. I'm definitely an open book. Uh, if anyone has a meeting with me, they're going to know pretty quickly how I feel. So, um, but I try to to sort of make sure that I'm, you know, keeping my sort of emotional intelligence up and trying to really read the other person to make sure I understand how they're feeling. Yeah, and and on that note, how have you been feeling this week? What has your mindset been like throughout the week in the program? I think it's been a positive week in the sense that like you know when you get that that feedback. Uh, sort of when things are going really well like it's great you feel like you're on cloud nine and then all it takes is for sort of one little piece of information to come to come through and you know you sort of sink back down or it it really did require a lot of sort of yeah emotional management this week i think uh, a quote that i found this week that probably really helped me sort of contextualize everything is you know in startups it's never as good as you think but it's never as bad as you think either um, so I think that's, uh, you know, both sobering and heartening at the same time, because, you know, you're, you're just in this constantly, you're, you're thinking about it day and night, you're, you know, I'm sleeping and dreaming about it and I'll wake up and I'll write a note down or I'll write something in my phone and you're never, you're never off. So I think having that sort of, you know, almost, you know, honesty with yourself to say, okay, look, are you moving in the right direction? Are you making incremental gains? Have you gotten further this week? than you were last week um, all those little questions just help i guess with you know managing your own emotions so um, i think just trying to really document the incremental progress and actually recording this podcast is a really good way of doing it because i get to i get to come here and sort of have a, a bit of a sort of a cathartic review of how everything's going so i think having that and externalizing it uh, whether that's on a podcast or whether that's with your family and friends trying to have like a trusted person that you can talk to about your emotions and that can't always be your co-founder. Sometimes it needs to be a partner or a friend uh, is, is really useful. Well, it sounds like you're in quite a positive headspace at the moment, which, which is really great to hear. We're very happy for you in that sense. Uh, and it sounds like you're having some really great, important discussions as well. What else have you learned this week? Um, I think, well, it's positive on some days. Other days, you know, really, sh- really shitty. I think, uh, can I say shitty? I don't know. You can say whatever you like. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> uh, some of the days have been really tough. I think uh, when you, you know, I mentioned last week that we found a competitor in the US that had got funded and sort of we really dug a bit more into that and we realized, oh, Jesus, like that, they're, they're really good. Like they're, they're very, very good at what they do and they've got a lot of support and funding and a big team. And you're sitting there going like, oh gosh, like how am I, how are we even going to bother tackling this? And I think- when you see competitors, and I'm sure every startup goes through this journey of finding competitors in other countries or someone, you know, you think you've got this really novel idea and then someone else is doing it. And you're like, oh, well, it's not worth it. I think I got to a point where I realized actually having a competitor is a good thing um, because not only does it give you ideas, but it shows that there's interest in the space. Even better if there's someone who's been funded. Um, so that that is definitely like a good proof of concept, but it's just riding those waves of emotions um, so learning how to sort of, you know, manage your emotions that way. Um, and I think another thing I learned this week was also uh, really dealing with those investor meetings where they throw the curly questions at you. So, you know, they have a really clear point of view on what they actually sort of want to want to see from you. And, you know, okay, have we gone through the problem? Yes. Do we like it? Yes. Is the, the total market size good? Yes. All right. Keep moving now. And then we really got into business model this week. And business model was obviously like a really big sticking point. You know, how do you get towards that, you know, 100 million in five years target that VCs are looking for? How do you show that trajectory? You know, what parallel products do you go into? How do you monetize your business? What are the different revenue streams? So for me, that was a really, really good learning to understand, okay, like how do we map out this journey and how, and are all of these revenue streams fitting in with our vision? 
Because for me, like I really like to look for business models where you're not just, you know, profiting off people or profiting off the consumer. I think it's really easy to just do like a traditional transactional e-commerce marketplace type of model. But it's much harder to work out, you know, how do we add value to the consumer's lives and how do we succeed by adding value rather than just profiting? Um, and it's, it's a it's an important nuance uh, that I'm really trying to explore. And, you know, we've got a couple of business model alternatives we've been looking through. Um, but I think those pushes from the Antler team have been really useful because they sort of take you through in those in those good stages. Okay, problem, total addressable market, business model. Uh, we'll come to defensibility and moat very quickly. That's going to be a big sticking point. Um, but learning how to deal with those questions, rapid fire, 20-minute conversations, bang, 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 come in prepared, leave with actions. So that's been uh, really useful just to have that, that one-on-one coaching. And what's your approach? Uh, say you go in one week and get some advice and feedback uh, to how you then represent next week. Do you, do you address their feedback up front the first thing you say to them what what's the way that you go about that i try to keep the the communication ongoing i think you can't just come back a week later because they're dealing with about 50 teams so they won't remember so i think really try and crystallize what are the two or three sticking points that are really sort of like the thorns in their side and then go about addressing those across the week so sometimes i like on you know i'll, I'll use slack to drop them a few messages to say, just to say look thanks for the chat uh clear on these messages here's immediately some work that we've done bang 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 so like coming back to them quickly not only shows that you're like really action oriented but sometimes you know they they don't need to wait for the full picture Um, if you can give them some sound bites you can give them some some good headlines or uh, you know confidence that that you're moving in the right direction um, that's going to be really valuable also just for your relationship and then they appreciate that they can come back in their own time they can read it when it suits them but it just means that they can follow your journey rather than it just being dipping in week in, week out. So I think that's sort of how I've tried to manage that. And you've spoken about uh, total addressable market previously and sort of the size of business that these VCs are looking for. Mm. How big is actually big enough? So I think it needs to be big enough for you, even as a small player, to have some form of um, you know impact or, or size. So... Um, if I take Airbnb as an example, you know, they're moving into that, you know, they were originally in, you know, sleeping on, on my couch. It was like, it was literal, a literal Airbnb. Mm. Um, and they were just about sofa, sofa surfing and couch surfing, but the total addressable market for Airbnb was the travel tourism. I mean, you could argue it was originally the hotel and accommodation industry. Now they're moving into the travel and tourism industry. The, the world is their oyster, I think. So that's, you know, in the trillions of dollars spent annually. So I think that when you're looking at total addressable market, you need to be looking in sort of, I would say that for a VC, the billions, I think is important. They want to see that there's a, a, a global total addressable market that's that's into the billions. Um, so, you know, the pet industry is worth $13 billion in Australia. It's worth over $50 billion US dollars in the States. So they're, they're big total addressable markets. And I think that what you're trying to do is basically give the investors the confidence to say, look, is there enough room for us to pivot and change and move, but still reach that target? That's sort of what they're looking for. They, they want the confidence to know, well, okay, is, is this market, like if I achieve 100% of this market, it's only going to be... $20 million. Like that is not realistic. And it also doesn't give you a lot of room to pivot if you get it wrong. So it's more just about f- sort of safeguarding their investments, but also giving you the, the bandwidth to be able to, to change if you need to. Because if you're playing in a big total addressable market, that means there's more problems, means there's more opportunities. Um, and I guess you have a bit more head, head space as well and headroom. Last week, we spoke a lot about uh, speaking to consumers and people outside of the program. Um, we, did you have a chance to visit any more people outside of the building? Absolutely. I think the takeaway from me last week was just really find the pain. You know, is this a painkiller or is this a vitamin? I think we spoke about. And, you know, you need to go to where the pain is and find out how acute that is. And, you know, for me, that involved getting out and speaking to people. So um, getting out into the field. So this week, we know we were hitting the phones. We were talking to dog owners. We were talking to um, breeders in the community. We were hitting the dog parks. I think the cool thing is that people want to talk to you. 
when you're talking about their pet. It's a great intro because you just yeah. go up to them and say, oh, your dog's really cute. And then just the conversation <laughs> flows really well from there. Um, although I really don't like interrupting people. Like I'm really like, you know, if, if people are, you know, enjoying their lives in the park, the last thing they want is for someone to come up and like badger them with 20 questions. But funnily enough, my soon hopefully to be co-founder uh, is very good at it. Uh, so he's good at in the interrupting and then I take over and start talking. So, you know, we, we balance each other well that way. But uh, I think it's a really, really good way to start um, testing your assumptions because, you know, once you're, you know, your assumptions get challenged pretty quickly when you, when you speak to people, what you sort of think internally and what you sort of like hold dear to yourself, um, you know, when the rubber hits the road, you really realize that quickly. Um, and I think uh, there's a, a really nice way of thinking about it as well, which is in every survey that you do or every question that you ask in consumer research, uh, you should always have one question in that survey that absolutely terrifies you to ask because it will unhinge your business. And that's a really good way of making sure you're getting honest feedback because otherwise, if you're just looking for platitudes or looking for reinforcement, then you'll get it because you'll lead them there. So asking, you know, making sure that there are some questions in there that really get to the heart of what you're offering and allow them to say no or allow them to cut a hole in what you're doing. It's better to ask them now than spend, you know, years building something that no one wants. So that's, that's been a really, uh, really good learning just to, to get out and talk. Would you be willing to share what that question was for you? I think that question was for me, you know, how it's always like, how painful was that process? Like, uh, was it, you know, was it painful to you? If, you know, if you were to do it again, would you do anything differently or how could it have been made better? And sometimes if people turn around and say, no, it was fine. Like, no, nah, wasn't, I mean, it was a little bit painful, but realistically, wasn't the biggest uh, wasn't the biggest issue in my life and I solved it and I haven't thought about it since when you hear those types of feedback you're like okay maybe I'm not in the right space um, so it goes back to just finding that pain um, so if the pain isn't there uh, then you know that there's something fundamentally wrong so for me that was that question that I was always asking at the very end it was like okay you know you're asking them about the process asking them about the problems and then getting to them and being like, would you change anything about it? Or how painful was it? If you could make it better, would you make it better? And if, you know, some, and some people did answer, no, it was fine. Like, no, no issues. But then other people actually did go through and they were like, yes, I would have gone back and changed this. Like, this was really painful. Um, and then you can even take it a bit further and say, okay, would you have paid for a solution to that? That's an even scarier question because then you're like, you're really trying to get commitment. And we'll, we'll come on, I think, and talk about this in terms of how do you ask the right questions. And, you know, asking about hypotheticals is never good. But if you're, you know, getting people to put money down is always a good way of doing it. Um, always a good way of trying to get commitment. But if people are saying that they didn't find a pain point, and even if they did, they wouldn't pay for a solution, then you know you're in trouble. So those are probably the, the scary questions that keep you up at night. Do you think that people sometimes don't realize after the fact what the pain was it's it is really difficult because um as human beings we're very bad at predicting how things could be better um and you know the cliched example is sort of the iphone example you know no one could have imagined that or you know or even the, you know the super cliched example of um if you ask people uh what they you know if you ask people around the time of henry ford what they wanted they would have said a faster horse instead of the you know debut of the car so realistically people are great at expanding their minds but if you can try you know the question that i really like to ask is you know if you could wave a magic wand and make the process better how would you do that and it doesn't necessarily ask them for features it doesn't necessarily ask them for exact points but it just gives them an opportunity to say like how could we take the pain away and those questions are super super useful but uh yeah it's it's definitely a, definitely a challenge to like try and get the right insights from people in that, in that part of the journey. And we can imagine you, in, you interviewed some interesting and fun people at the dog park. Did any respondents in particular stick out um, as particularly insightful or interesting? Yeah, I think it's a really interesting point in terms of doing consumer interviews. So going to the dog park was great. But you're obviously talking to people who have already got a dog and they certainly have like a particular view of the journey. And 
you almost want to talk to also people who are looking at getting dogs and they're much harder to find. So don't, you know, want to go to the dog, you want to talk to dog owners, you go to the dog park. You want to talk to people who are thinking of getting a dog, much harder to nail down. And you need to really get a bit more creative about how do you find those people. Uh, so I think the dog park was really useful because you got some really great insights of people who, you know, spent $6,000 on a Cocker Spaniel and, you know, flew it from Victoria to Queensland or, um, uh, you know, Queensland to Sydney and just sort of hearing the pain points about that, what they went through, like negotiations with breeders, you know, all of those pain points along the way it was super interesting just to understand, okay, um, where, you know, where were the pain points during the process? And, and people do forget about it once the dog is home and it's there and they, you know, they're very happy to have the new member of the family. So getting them to think retrospectively about the pain, it might've been painful in that moment, but afterwards people tend to look back with sort of rose tinted goggles and say, Oh, it was fine. Um, but yeah, I think those sort of responses where people really said like, okay, I mean, this was the level of involvement. I think that that was the common thread, like the high involvement. None of these were low involvement purchases. These are big, um, big purchases some are expensive but even if they're not expensive they're still high involvement because you're you know taking in a new family member into your home for 10 you know 5 10 15 years so every single person had a such a strong level of emotion and commitment in what they were doing so all of the all of the answers were so so valuable um so i thought that each one of them added a, a new dimension to the way that we would look at this but the overall you know high involvement purchase means that people are going to be actively invested in looking at this space. So I think that's always also a good bellwether. It's, you know, coming from a very low involvement background, which was fast moving consumer goods, you know, you would kill to have someone research your products for five minutes. Like, but people are spending hours upon hours looking for the right pet for them and still facing issues. So that for me was really, really interesting to get um, into the weeds of that. All right, Nathan. So when you're actually prepping for these consumer interviews, what are some tips that you might have? Do you have some standardized questions that you ask each time or you go with the flow? How do you go about it? I think you need to go in knowing what your outcome is. Um, And I guess the first thing I'd say is that at this early stage, especially when you're sort of just getting into the space, qualitative interviews are so much more valuable in terms of getting the insights and getting really into the detail of what you're after. Because I think... Quantitative is great, but only once you know what you what you want. Like once you know what you're asking for. When you're in the qualitative stage, when you're, when you're in the early stages of consumer research, you're still trying to really find out what that problem is or what the real pain is. So getting people to fill that out quantitatively, you're not getting that richness of insight or that richness of data or even like the little emotions. Like for me, a really interesting um, part of this process has been you know, my, my wife Imogen has been doing consumer research almost every day in the vet clinic. You know, every day she'll have puppies coming in and she'll have a puppy consult and she'll ask them just offhand, oh, so, you know, where did you get your puppy? And, you know, 80% of the time, the answer was always the same. It was always Gumtree. But the way that they said it was the most interesting part because they said it with this certain tone of voice. They would say, you know, take a breath and say, gum tree like like almost like they were like embarrassed to say that and that was really like a a, an eye-opening moment because it was almost like yeah you know we wanted to find somewhere better but we we didn't know where to look or we just you know we know that it's not right and we know we're not doing the right thing so you know can you imagine getting that level of detail in a quantitative survey you know someone could have easily filled out and said yeah where'd you get it gum tree great but you're not getting that level of richness even just in the the simple emotion that comes from from that phrase so that is absolutely golden when you're turning insights into actions so i think the first thing i would say is start with qualitative until you feel confident enough that you know what you're asking for and what you're looking for then you can move into quant later Um, but then i think it's you know really not having necessarily like a super standard template because things tend to be, you've got to keep it casual. People like casual conversations. They want to sort of have a chat with you. And if you go through like a standard, like, okay, thank you. And then this, and then this, then you're also not listening. And listening is so important because it's very easy to stick to a script, but it's very um, difficult to pick up on cues. 
So it's a fine balance. That's why doing it with two people is really good because one of you is leading and making sure that the conversation is steered and on track and you're getting the information. And then the second person is taking notes, but also picking up on things that you might miss because as a leader and a facilitator, you're naturally not going to be able to do too many things at once. So having two people is really useful for that consumer research. Um, And then just going in with like a really sort of clear vision of where you want to get to and having some questions and prompts in your mind. So, okay, I, I know I need to get to these points and I know I need to sort of get the conversation in this direction, but not necessarily having like a word for word script. Uh, I think that can, that can tend to be quite challenging. Um, so just making sure that you're keeping it casual and keeping it open. And when it comes to recording the insights, if you were the second person in a team that is trying to record the different things going on in the interview, do you have any top tips on taking notes or recording some of those observations? Mm. I think that if you obviously if you can record like audio record, brilliant, you can listen back to it. Also, just any anecdotal uh, or footage that you can include for investors or include for people like for people in meetings so valuable because when people hear it from you great when an investor sees it being spoken by a person so much more valuable so that was for me like a really um, good insight to be able to just make sure you're capturing good stuff but realistically that's not always possible and sometimes you know I've been on the phone you know uh, shoulder up to my ear holding the phone in one hand and, and typing furiously on the other hand um, sometimes uh, you've got your talking and your and your co-founder or colleagues just you know taking notes down um, in dot points I think trying to it, it's, it's much easier when you're doing a phone interview because you can transcribe it much more quickly but whatever way you do it just try and just take those key insights and quotes where they're really useful and then actually what I find uh, really valuable is then trying to standardize it to an extent. So put it into an Excel spreadsheet, you know, on one side have the, you know, the rows going down with all of the the questions or the sort of the topic areas in the columns have the different people you've spoken to. And then that way you can very easily look for themes within the insights um, and much easier to be able to then sort of read across and see like what are the common trends that are coming up because ultimately, um, it's very easy when you're mapping out insights to sort of just ignore them. You know, like if, if they're on an Excel spreadsheet, like, uh, or they're in different documents, like you might have confirmation bias and just pick out, uh, you know, the things that work. Um, but if you actually go through it and actually if you print it out, like print out the insights one by one and put them in front of you uh, on a desk and make yourself go through each one and put it into a pile, you can't ignore them that way. And I think that if, if you really force yourself to go through each one, record it, think about it, does it fit here? If it doesn't, why not? Why am I ignoring this? And is it going to come back to bite me later? Um, so that codification process is really useful. One of the things I've found helpful in the past, if you're a very, very visual person, is you could copy and paste all of the answers from your first question into a word cloud uh, generator online, which will then make the words that are mentioned the most, the biggest. For me, I find that really helpful to understand what's really being said. You mentioned that you spoke to people at the dog park when they're with their dogs. How important is the environment that you meet people in to a good quality interview? Yeah, it's it's a really good question. It needs to be one where they feel comfortable and and confident as well. So trying to get them when they're walking down the street, never a good idea because everyone's going somewhere. The dog park's actually a really good place to, to, to get people. I mean, off-leash dog parks, I would say, are better because, uh, you know, the dog's roaming around. You can walk with the person. So, you know, they've said, I'm coming here for 30 minutes to let my dog have a walk. So the dog's around playing and the person's just being there with the dog. So you being there and asking the questions isn't too much of, a, of an inconvenience or too much of a, you know, a pain for them. So when people are trying to move somewhere or get them or you're interrupting them on the way to something, much, much more, more challenging. So trying to get them in the right environments is, it is really difficult and sometimes you don't have that luxury and you just need to, in that case, be really specific with what you want to ask, you know, two or three questions. But I think that's when you're going for volume. At this early stage, try and find examples where you can just, or try and find environments where you can just get them for that depth of time, you know, 20, 30 minutes. Even if it's just honestly 10 to 15 qualitative interviews at the beginning, 
that richness of, of information is going to be so much more valuable. Um, but, you know, not everyone has the luxury of going to the dog park and, and having people spend 30 to 45 minutes there anyway. So it really does vary. But, you know, you, you do need to catch them in the right moment so that they feel comfortable asking and they don't feel rushed and give you curt answers because they're not useful to you anyway. When it comes to approaching strangers at the dog park or wherever you might be conducting interviews, do you have any top tips on making a good first impression or reaching out to start that conversation? I think just a friendly face and and finding a way to, so finding a way in, again, dogs, easy, everyone, you know, people approach people all the time to talk about dogs. So, you know, that's a, that's a very easy, non-threatening way in because you can go up and just start having a conversation about their dog and people love to you know, people love to talk about their dog. So it's a point of pride. And so it's a, it's a much easier. And then you can slowly bring in the idea of, oh, hey, we're also looking at this area and we'd love to just ask you a quick couple of questions about your experience. So finding a, a casual way in is great. Um, it, again, depends on where you're interrupting people. Um, I think that being really clear up front what you want is, is useful. So, you know, just being clear, like, look, um, we're doing this. Uh, we need, you know, two minutes of your time to just ask you a few questions about this. Would that be okay? Being really clear about what your ask is up front is is good because people are more likely to then give you time. And if you don't, if you just sort of say, hey, can I talk to you? You don't know if it's for two minutes, for 20 minutes, and people are sort of there like a bit antsy. They're, they don't know whether to move or to, to leave or they're trying to pull themselves away because they feel you're going to sell them something. That's also a good thing, you know, making sure, you know, I'm not here to sell you anything. I'm just here to ask you some questions. So just really trying to disarm people and, you know, think, think about if you were approached on the street or if you were approached by someone, how would you feel? Obviously, your guard's going to go straight up. So how do you help people relax their guard? So you've got to think about the different the different ways you can do that. Um, and if you're talking about a certain area, so if you're interviewing people about fitness, you talk to them about fitness. You know, if you're, if you're at the gym, find a way to start the conversation about something other than the actual interview. Um, if you're on the street and you're stopping people, you don't really have much choice. But if, you're in, if you can find an environment where people are that fits with what you're talking about, start the conversation a bit more casually and gently uh, with something that relates to them because they're much more likely to be open um, and people love to talk about themselves. So never underestimate, uh, you know, the open-ended questions that might get them talking and feeling more comfortable. Do you think that it's important, uh, if you're not an expert in the subject matter that you're interviewing about, to take somebody that is? Uh, it, it depends on the the area. So obviously, if you've gone into a startup about a particular domain area and you're not the expert then yes, I think you need to have someone there or you need to have upskilled yourself enough to be able to go in and have a confident conversation. Can you hold your own, I think is, is the main part of that question. Um, if you're able to hold your own and have a confident conversation with someone, uh, then great. If you can't, I'd probably ask yourself whether you're the right person for that startup uh, or whether you've, whether you've you know, upskilled yourself enough. Um, so I think if you're, if you're the CEO of your startup or if you're you know, one of the founding members, you need to be comfortable having those conversations. Um, even without, even if another member is a domain expert, you need to, to rise to their level and be able to at least bluff your way confidently through those conversations. And I guess there might actually be some benefits for not being the domain expert per se, because you come in a little bit green. And yeah, yeah, you can absolutely sort of see things that, that other people can't see. Um, I think one other thing I'd say though about interviews is um, it's really easy to lead with an idea um, and I would just say never lead with an idea like, oh, we're here to talk to you about this. or we're here to talk to you about this solution. Bad, bad idea. People will not, it, it closes people off very quickly. And it also means that you're not getting the right insights because you're leading people down a path. I think you always want to talk about them and not about you. You're, you're there to empathize. You're there to talk about their life, not your idea. Um, and, you know, asking those right questions, you know, open-ended questions, talking to them about their experiences, you know, when you ask people to talk about their problems or their experiences rather than your idea, they'll immediately go to the moments that are top of mind for them. And you may need to probe and, you know, move in certain directions and, and get them to sort of talk about certain things more deeply. Um, but naturally, they'll gravitate to the most salient moments. Um, and then just getting to the root of those perceived perceived problems as well. You know, a good question is like, what you know, why did you bother doing that? Really helps go from behavior to motivation. 
and that gives you like a really good good in. Um, and then what I mentioned before uh, earlier in the podcast, always ask about the present, not about the future, because people can comment on how they felt about things or how they sort of wanted to, um, you know, go about something, but they're very bad at predicting what they're actually going to do. So yeah, talking through current problems is great. Um, and then that's actually, you know, that's your job then to go and take that into what does your MVP look like? You know, that's your value add as the startup. You know, people tell you their problems. It's your job to then go and, and turn that into something that's actually going to make their lives better. Because if they knew what it was, they would have found a way to get it already. So that's where you earn your your uh, your equity by basically adding value in that, in that respect. And um, we've learned a lot about qualitative interviews. Do you have any top tips on when you do decide to move on to quantitative interviews, how you might go about doing that and what are some best practices? So I think quantitative, again, it comes back to, you know, what are the, what are the key things that you want to learn uh, and trying to work out, can you codify them or quantify them into like really clear questions? Um, you can have open-ended questions in quantitative interviews and leave sort of a field open, but just expect people to come back with like one or two sentence answers. Um, people tend to not give you a paragraph. They'll give you, um, you know, a sentence or two. It's much easier to talk for a paragraph than to type for a paragraph. So I think realistically, when you're going into quant, you're just looking for things that you can codify very quickly. So, you know, um, can you codify the pain or, you know, where did you go to do this? Um, trying to sort of get narrow down from like five, 10 options to like the top three. Those are, that's sort of the territory that you're going to. Um, and you can use lots of tools for that. Like again, be, be thrifty in your startup life and use Google forms, use survey monkey. If you want to be a little bit fancy, you can go to Typeform, uh, which is basically a very glamorous, uh, survey tool has great UI uh, and a great sort of interactivity for the user. So as they're going through it, it just feels a little, a lot cleaner and a lot nicer. So I'd really recommend Typeform is a little bit more expensive, um, but you can do some great things like logic jumps and put your own branding into it. And it just feels like a, a better experience to be doing a, a survey in. Um, so I would say, keep it really tight. You know, people don't want to do 30 questions. They want to do 10 short ones, but again, you're just be really aware that you're not going to get richness. You're going to get substantiation and go through and say, okay, what do we just need to really substantiate quickly? Um, and also think about whether you can't get that data by scraping a website. Um, you know, rather than asking a hundred people, what, uh, how much did it cost for a certain thing uh, and getting an average price? Can you not just scrape a website and get that level of information and then do the average yourself. So think about if there's things that you can do via desk research versus things that you need to substantiate it from a quant interview. Uh, and just, again, be just really open about what you're actually going to get. Go in eyes wide open to that. When we're doing quant, Nathan, how many people do you think it is necessary to have in your quant study? Uh, and when you're finding those people, how do you go about vetting if they're the right people to have in your study? It's a very good question. It's almost like how long is a piece of string, to be honest. Um, I think I might answer the easier question first, which is the how do you go about getting the right people? I think it's all about the people who have that pain point and problem. If you've got into the qual part of it, um, you sorry, the quant part of the study, you then need to know, okay, who are the exact demographics and people that I need to be talking to? Uh, there's actually a great tool called Usability Hub, which allows you to... Um, put out survey questions to uh, particular demographics and uh, it basically gives you a demographic breakdown across age, gender, country, income, uh, digital expertise. And you can then go and sort of put a survey out to them very quickly. It's about $2 per respondent. So it's a little bit pricey, but it means that you can get that insights, uh, those insights really quickly. Um, but I would say there is a real uh, challenge within the industry where if you get consumer insights and they're not what you expect, then it's sort of almost like, well, they weren't the right consumers or like, oh, you know, bring me the right consumers. Like you haven't really, you know, you haven't gotten to the real people because they're not giving us the answers that we want. So I think being really clear up front on who are the people that have the problem, it's this group and survey them specifically um, will prevent you from going through that whole process of bring me the right people. Um, so I think that part of it is, is really, uh, really clear. But 
in terms of numbers, I think, you know, you need to anything less from a quant perspective, anything less than a hundred, I don't think is really representative. Um, and then even then uh, it's, you know, you need to do a couple of rounds of that to keep refining. So it's, it is a, a very tricky one. The, the other way of doing quant in a sort of roundabout way is just, you know, put an ad up on Facebook. You're going to get thousands of impressions very quickly and very cheaply. And that's more of a quantitative measure than perhaps any survey could be. You know, put up a ad with a call to action and see whether people click on it, see whether people sign up or like it or ideally engage with it. Uh, and that's going to be your quantitative measure as well. You know, if, if you put an ad up and you get a 10% sign up rate or conversion, then that's a pretty great result from a Facebook perspective. So I think that's almost like a, a more representative way rather than sort of trawling to do, you know, a hundred surveys, just get the ad up, get the thousands of impressions and see whether it resonates. And then if it doesn't change it, do it again. Keep refining and learning. All right, Nathan. So we've covered off a lot of what you've been doing this week. Uh, but on a completely different note, we know it's important to stay engaged and curious in the world around us. So what have you found interesting this week? So this week I've been looking into sort of the D2C e-commerce space. This was, the, you know, the industry I was passionate about with uh, with Day2, the previous startup I worked on. Um, and it hasn't been a good week for D2C e-commerce brands. I think Casper uh, Mattress had their IPO and it you know, did not go very well. I think a lot of IPOs recently haven't gone very well, but this uh, in particular, you know, uh, after its sort of initial initial uh, day has uh, has dropped quite a bit. Um, Harry's, the razor brand, was uh, due to be acquired by Edgewell Personal Care in the US um, and the Federal Trade Commission in the US blocked it um, for anti-competitive behavior. So Harry's, who really started a D2C but have now moved into actual retail and bricks and mortar, uh, are struggling quite a bit after after that being blocked. Um, but I think the one that I found the most interesting was uh, a business in the US that's only a couple of years old, two and a half years old, called Brandless, actually uh, shut down this year, two and a half years after opening. Um, and if you're not familiar with Brandless, they are basically a uh, a brand that has no brand. So they offer a bunch of uh, private label products um, all at a pretty uniform $3 price point or a multiple of $3. Uh, and the packaging looks brilliant. You know, it's uh, it's very functional, but it's very bold and bright. And the idea is that they wanted to sort of take brand out of the equation uh, and, you know, really stop consumers having to pay what they call the brand tax, which was, you know, that, that markup that uh, brands put on their products to pay for the prestige or the premium nature of what they're doing. Um, and it was a really interesting idea. You know, SoftBank's Vision Fund pumped about $240 million into, into this. And it is now shut down, which... So SoftBank's also not having a great uh, sort of great time at the moment with uh, with WeWork as well. Um, but what I found really interesting, so they stated on their website um, this sort of quote about while they, why they... Uh, broke down. So while the brandless team set a new bar for the types of products consumers deserves and at prices that they expect, the fiercely competitive direct-to-consumer market has proven unsustainable for our current business model. So I thought that was not only interesting from a direct-to-consumer perspective, you know, more and more brands are, are, you know, the barriers to entry are lower, but the competition is super high. So, you know, with some of these sort of high-profile struggles at the moment is to see an e-commerce really the the place to be and i guess on a from a marketing perspective is there value in not having a brand you know can people build a connection with a brandless brand i think the answer to that is probably not after seeing this yeah it's funny isn't it their solution to brands is creating a brand like yeah. it's, it's either like extremely clever or really silly um but yeah i i, I read that as well and i, I couldn't really put my finger on on it like whether it was great or terrible the one thing i did read about it though was that the three dollar price point thing sounds kind of smart until you realize it doesn't take into account any market dynamics for the specific categories they're entering and they entered so many categories without category expertise Mm. so you can sort of start to see where the there'd be chinks in the armor even from a pricing point of view Mm, absolutely and and you know they did try to sort of premiumize and move into other products uh, at six dollars or nine dollars but you know you're trying to basically create a whole category from scratch um and uh in multiple multiple verticals so yeah i i think it was an interesting experiment but i think the uh the devil's in the detail and and i think yeah this is unfortunately the way it's panned out yeah 
the DTC market is to me is almost like the subscription market in that there's you have to go outside of your normal purchasing behavior quite often and make a conscious decision to either put something on your credit or debit card and it kind of makes me think about you know when it comes to DTC how many places you can go to buy specific conscious purchases and things um, and especially when it comes to more consumer goods you know you are so used to going to uh, the grocery store to, to purchase and pick things up but to actually have to make an effort to purchase something from an online store um, that is outside of Amazon or outside of your normal ecosystem um, is kind of a key pain point as well. And then to manage all those subscriptions, I actually think there's a really big business idea in sort of subscription aggregation and like having like a tool that actually manages all of your subscriptions so that you know when the payments are coming up, when you can renew them. Um, Because as you said, you're going to so many different websites, um, you know, that's and that's that's how they get you. You do a free trial and you forget. And so I think that it's uh, it's an interesting environment, but I think almost like the, the wool's, be, wool's being removed from the eyes of investors and maybe they're starting to see the, the real value of D to C. So I'm not sure the verdict's in yet, but it's it's been a bit of a rocky rocky week. Yeah, it's absolutely fascinating. Um, Mark, what did you find interesting this week? So uh, I recently made a very quiet splurge purchase. Um, so it's quiet to the outside world, but very loud to my internal world. And that is I bought a pair of AirPods Pro recently. Whoa. Um, Whoa. Yeah, Stepping so, up. Uh, I saved it for a really long time. It was a piece of technology I, I really, um, really was after. Um, and there's something about them that is just very, very magical. I've been quite fascinated by the wire, the true wireless earbud market. Um, and for anyone that's listening that's not a tech nerd, those are earphones that you can wear that are wireless that will have no attachment to uh, cords that attaches the two earbuds together. So they kind of act like earplugs. So you get the ultimate feel of freedom as you're maybe walking around the house and listen to your favorite podcast. Um, but within the AirPods Pro, there were two features that I found really, really inspiring. Uh, one of them is a noise cancellation or active noise cancellation. And what they do is they're just these tiny little buds that will take in the outside ambient noise uh, with a speaker and they'll fl- filter it out with negative noise to create a little seal within your ear um, to act as a kind of mini earplug. And the most the way that it does this is it's a really, really tactile and cool sensory way when you put the two earbuds in there's this little sound that kind of sounds like a uh airplane door opening which is kind of like a but it's done in this really clear and really wonderful way that when the active noise cancelling uh activates it feels like you're in this really calm forest or in a completely different calm world which is yeah really really cool experience to to have when you're walking around a busy street and you can just hear um really sharp sirens but everything else has really been uh, cleared out but the other feature i found really inspiring was on the flip side there's a mode called transparency mode which does the complete opposite which is you can tap the side of the earphones and it uses those same speakers to actually amplify the noise that's around you so in a weird way it kind of gives you a sense of super normal hearing um, which I started playing with this feature quite a lot um, especially within the office and it's quite interesting to see how many conversations you can pick up around you <laughs> when you're um, when you t- when you turn the transparency mode on but also when I was taking a walk through the park I also turned them on and I realized there were so many different smaller animal sounds I could hear around me that I maybe wasn't picking up or wasn't conscious of so yeah definitely uh, give them a try if you're in an apple store or have a friend that has a pair it's amazing. And uh, this episode is brought to you by Apple yeah, AirPods. And, and if you'd like to uh, buy some, I'll be uh, <laughs> selling through my D2C store. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I definitely would, would second that recommendation. I don't have the Apple ones, but I do have true wireless earphones. And if you're someone who's doing like lots of fitness activities or outdoors a lot, it's a game changer. The other day, I actually had to use wired headphones because I forgot to charge my wireless ones. Probably the only downfall of wireless headphones. Uh, and it was awful. I was riding my bike and I had all these cords going everywhere. You, for, you forget very quickly how terrible it is having all these wires. Or you don't realize how terrible the wires are until you've tried without them. Yeah, I, I can't wait to get a pair for myself, to be honest. Like, I think even looking at AirPods as a percentage of Apple's business, oh, it is yeah. huge. Like, I think they said if you took it outside of apple it would be like as a separate company it would still be like monstrous um although my only fear with the airpods is that you know 
you're on the bus or something or you're, you're walking and someone just runs past you and takes them out of your ears and, and, and <laughs> yeah. runs away. Like at least with the cause, you had a bit of uh, security. That's right. You've but, got to turn on transparency mode so you can just hear them. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but I think uh, I haven't actually heard too many stories of that. So it's probably a bit of an urban legend. That's awesome. Uh, and Mark, what have you found interesting this week? Uh, it's no splurge, so it's not as exciting. But uh, uh, as you know, Mark, because we've been keeping up to date, I have not been drinking coffee during the week for the last, I'd say, two and a half weeks. So it's an experiment I'm just playing on myself, uh, which is to see whether I actually need coffee. I'll take you on a quick whistle-stop tour of my journey here. So it started with uh, the fact that I used to buy coffee every day. So about a year, year and a half ago, every day I go to work, go downstairs, buy a coffee from the cafe. And then the thought occurred, which was, why am I buying a coffee when during the week at work, I'm actually not appreciating this coffee I'm paying three or four bucks for. I'm just getting it down the hatch to get the energy going. So I switched to instant coffee in the office for free and realized actually I quite like instant coffee. Anyway, fast forward and I was really loading up on these instant coffees, like having like four or five scoops in each one. Uh, and I, I thought, do I actually need this? Like I don't really enjoy it in the office. I'm just doing it for the sake of it. So I decided to stop couple of weeks ago and I've just been having tea instead cold turkey yeah uh, I still have it on the weekend because I actually do enjoy going to a cafe and having a coffee uh, especially midway through a cycle uh, but I've actually noticed that I'm enjoying it a lot like I, I love actually not being on coffee I didn't notice it was something that gets my heart rate going quite a lot especially in meetings in the mornings and stuff so it's been awesome I I think I'll still have coffees casually when I catch up with people and stuff during the week but Definitely not going to just habitually have it every day for work. That's awesome. And have you experienced any withdrawal symptoms at all? Not at all. I, I, I've never really felt like the type of person who gets sort of addicted to things mm. or, or has withdrawal. So yeah, fortunately for me, that hasn't been an issue. Yeah, I, I have tried. And if there is a day when I don't have coffee, I will get a headache. And it yeah. is, which is bad. Like I'm well too far down the addiction line. But, <laughs> uh, but I think that's, yeah, it's cool. I think, you know, you, do, you realize that you don't need it to, uh, mm. to sort of get through the day. Um, and, you know, aside from the headaches, I think you like I, I can function without it. But yeah, when you the social settings really are where it has yeah, the most nice. place. Yeah. yeah. Uh, just out of interest, Nathan, would you ever consider giving it up or, or trying to find a way to give it up? I'd be open to it. I don't know during uh, Antler whether I'd be able to give it <laughs> Not up. Not a great time. Uh, yeah. Not the best time to try that experiment. Yeah, no. uh, but I'd be open to it. I think that, uh, you know, dry, dry uh, February, dry July, all of those things are, are good. But yeah, I'd be open to, the, to giving it a go. Nice. Well, Nathan, thanks so much for coming to the show this week. We've learned so much from having you and we can't wait to catch up with you next week. Looking forward to it. Thank you.